and turn with me to John chapter 14. John chapter 14. And we want to look at verses 21 through 24. Tremendous song we just sang with great words and great thought there, which leads me to the question this morning, do you love Jesus? Do you love Jesus? Ask this question to most anyone you know, and you'll probably receive a positive response. Why? Because it's probably almost would seem un-American not to love Jesus. It would smack of heathenism if we deny a love for Jesus. And yet when the dust settles and the truth is made known, how many people genuinely love Jesus Christ? How many even have a clue of what love of Christ really means? I recently read an article entitled, Growing Number of Americans Love Jesus But Don't Go to Church, Barna Finds. I think most of us are familiar with the Barna group that does surveys or polls concerning religious topics. The article said, while an increasing number of Americans are reportedly abandoning the institutional church and its defined boundary markers of religious identity, Many Americans still believe in God, and they practice faith outside its walls, a new Barna study has found. Well, just because a poll or survey claims something doesn't make it true. And those, including myself, uh, who read this article were concerned with some of Barna's faulty definitions They had some faulty definitions for faith and orthodoxy. And another article in reaction to this survey was entitled, Barna's Mythical Creature, the Church-Rejecting Jesus Lover. And the author said that the people who claim to love Jesus and not the church could be included with such things as leprechauns, elves, and temporary tax hikes. There is no such thing. And then he went on to say about the survey, despite leaving the church, Barna labels them as maintaining a robustly orthodox view of God. And he defined that, they defined that as believing in only one God, 93%, seeing him as omnipresent, 95%, all powerful, all knowing, perfect creator of the earth who rules the world today, 94%, but a bare 18% talk often with others about spiritual matters. And 34% do rarely or never talk to others about spiritual matters. And unsurprisingly, only 28% affirm an obligation to evangelize. The Barna Group's editor-in-chief, Roxanne Stone, insists that they still love Jesus. They still believe in the Scripture but they do not attend church because they can find God elsewhere or church is not personally relevant to them. 
And then the survey says of the people that say they still believe Scripture, only 20%, uh, 26% read Scripture very much. And yet more than 8 out of 10 will pray. Apparently they have not read Proverbs 28, verse 9, that says, He that turneth away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer shall be an abomination. So that brings us back to our initial question. Do you love Jesus? And that's what confronts us here in John chapter 14 in our text this morning. Over and over, we have come face to face with both genuine and spurious love of Christ. We see that in multitudes who claim to love him, but they fell away from him at demands of the gospel. We see the individuals who cast all aside in favor of true love of Jesus Christ, a love that would declare them to be true followers of the Lord. And if love is merely something we can claim to to have without any further responsibility, then we can grant that most people love Jesus Christ. But if love carries with it the responsibilities and obligations then we must admit that there are many who claim to love Christ. In fact, they do not. I cannot even begin to tell you how many times throughout my 57 years of being saved that I have heard others and I have joined them in singing the great Old Testimony hymn, Oh, How I Love Jesus. Unfortunately, many who sang with me were liars. In fact, I would have to admit there were a number of years I sang this hymn and I I was nothing but a liar as well. For you see, unless our love for Christ has content, the content of an obedient life, then it is vain. It is worthless. And within this text, we have the simplest and the clearest sign of a genuine believer. He loves Christ, and he shows this by his or her obedience. The fact is, you cannot love Christ without obeying him. Nor can you truly obey him unless you love him. And so, this morning, the delight of obedience verifies genuineness in our relationship to Jesus Christ, and we need to examine our profession in light of the passage here in God's Word. Do we honestly love Jesus Christ? If we say yes, then do we demonstrate that love by obedience to Christ? Notice, first of all, a practice that proves A practice that proves. The Bible does not leave any room for empty professions. Jesus himself in the Sermon on the Mount made the startling statement, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. The living God is not impressed at our many claims to religion or Christian profession. And what matters is, a, is the true content of heart and of life. Yes, many claim to love Christ, and they claim to know Him. But the Word of God clearly distinguishes between that which is genuine and that which is unreal. 
Real love for Christ will be proven by the practice of obedience. Notice commandments embraced. In verse 21, he says, He that hath my commandments. He that hath my commandments. Uh, This shows that Jesus is speaking of more than simply someone who has a Bible. I think I read also this week that 87% of Americans have a Bible in their home. You'd think our nation would be a lot more spiritual than they are, wouldn't you? 87% of Americans have a Bible in their home. But that's not what he's talking about here. And since the possession of a scroll of Scripture was very rare in the first century, it's obvious that Jesus does not mean you have physical access to His commands by this statement. Instead, He is referring to one who has come into an intimate contact with the revealed will of God. It uh, It is one who has heard what Christ has demanded has embraced it, has drunk deeply in it, has now that as his whole focus in life. You see, we've got our work cut out for us, don't we? Because there are over 1,000 commands in the New Testament alone. And the verb here, half, is in the present tense. He's showing that this is a continual relationship to the commands of Christ. The question is that we must ask is, what are the commandments to which Jesus refers? Well, already in John 14 and verse 15, Jesus has stated, if you love me, keep my commandments. Now, he restates the same in a very forceful, uh, promising way. These commandments must refer to the revelation of Christ given to his disciples. It begins with the Old Testament law, which we uh, often call the Ten Commandments. It continues in the glorious clarification of those commandments in the Sermon on the Mount. And it includes those demands of Christ, which we read throughout the four Gospels. And it includes the word he gave through his chosen apostles, which we have in the New Testament epistles. You say, Pastor, you've just given me the whole Bible. Right. Indeed, that word of the living God to us is now our obligation as followers. It's not ours to pick and to choose whatever sounds good for us and for our obedience and then just scrap the rest of it. There's within the heart of the child of God a whole new attitude toward the commands, the precepts, the promises, the statutes of God's word. And now it becomes our delight rather than our dreaded obligation. If ye love me, you see there's the condition. If ye love me, keep my commandments. That shows that obedience naturally follows our genuine love for Christ Consider with me Psalm 119 and uh, how this pictures the progress of a faithful follower of the living God. Psalm 119 verse 4, Thou hast commanded us to keep thy precepts diligently. 
Verses 14 through 16, I have rejoiced in the way of thy testimonies as much as in all riches. I will meditate in thy precepts and have respect unto thy ways. I will delight myself in thy statutes. I will not forget thy word. Verse 24, thy testimonies also are my delight and my counselors. Verse 35, make me to go in the path of thy commandments, for therein do I delight. Verse 43 and 44, Take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth, for I have hoped in thy judgments, so shall I keep thy law continually forever and ever. Verse 47 to 48, And I will delight myself in thy commandments which I have loved. My hands also will I lift up unto the commandments which I have loved, and I will meditate in thy statutes. Verse 57, Thou art my portion, O Lord. I have said that I will keep thy words. Verses 92 and 93, Unless thy law have been my delights, I should have perished in mine affliction. I will never forget thy precepts, for with them thou hast quickened me. Verse 97, Oh, how I love thy law. It's the medita- my meditation all the day. And then verse 103, How sweet are thy words unto my taste, yea, greater or sweeter than honey to my mouth. The Apostle John captures this truth very clearly in the first epistle. We read a portion of that a little earlier. But he goes on in chapter 5 and verse 2 and 3 and saying, By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and keep His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not grievous. His commandments are are not weighty. They're not heavy. They're not burdensome. What a statement. Listen, if you are repulsed by the idea of, of, of God demanding anything of you, if you have no clear sense of obligation within your heart to obey what God has commanded, if you have no delight in God's commands, then you're either not saved, or as a Christian, you've decided your will is better than God's will, and you're still in your sins. Something marvelous happens to a person when he's born again. The old nature that was repulsed by God's commands or that viewed them as a legalistic way of living now finds them to be very words of life. And these words are sweet to the taste. They're honey in the mouth. They're words to meditate upon and walk in the divine way. Do you have His commandments? Again, I'm not asking you, do you have a Bible? But do you have His commandments? Are they now your very own? Do you view the Bible in a completely different way as the very Word of God to you? J.C. Ryle comments, Passive impressions which do not lead to action actually deaden and paralyze the heart. Living and doing are the only real evidence of grace. Where the Holy Spirit is there, will always be a holy life. Commandments embraced. Secondly, notice consistency exercised. Again in verse 21, He that hath my commandments and keepeth them. The commandments of our Lord are not meant to just adorn our walls or be a magnet on our refrigerator. They're not just a Facebook post that you say amen to and you repost it. 
Some of you know what I'm talking about. It's only in keeping those commandments that the believer finds blessing and proves his genuineness. He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, our Lord says. He it, then he goes on to say, he it is that loveth me. Again, the verb used here is a present tense verb. And that's why I make a point that consistency must be exercised in this obedience. The question we struggle with is, how much obedience is enough obedience? How much do I have to obey God? Well, that's really not something that should bother us, should it? The real question is, do I have a true heart for obedience? Do we delight in the commands of God? Do we have within us a constant longing and unceasing urge to obey the Lord? Someone has expressed very clearly the breadth of obedience in the child of God. He said, true faith embraces Christ in whatever ways the scripture hold him out to the, uh, him out to the poor sinners. That is, hold Christ out to poor sinners. You remember the story of King Saul after the battle with the Amalekites? Through the prophet Samuel, God had told Saul he was to utterly destroy the Amalekites. No one nor anything of the Amalekites was to survive as a part of God's judgment upon those ruthless people. But Saul decided, I'm going to take matters into my own hands and I'm going to save some of the best livestock, some of the precious metals and other luxuries, and I'm also going to spare King Agag. And when he was confronted by Samuel, Saul acted as though he had spared the the livestock to sacrifice to the Lord. And the precious metals were to give as an offering to God. Wow, that was really great of him. Very spiritual. And yet that was not the command of God. The heart of Saul was unbelieving and wretched. And it was exposed by his acts of disobedience. And those mortal words of the prophet shot as an arrow into his heart. Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as, a, as the sin of witchcraft. Stubbornness is iniquity and idolatry. And because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, he hath also rejected thee from being king. Some say, well, I've not been chosen the king of anything. But the same result happens in our lives when we reject the word of God. Saul followed the impulse of his heart, his heart which was desperately wicked. And one that did not know the living God, a true believer, may fail in his obedience, but he will not fail in his heart to obey. It will be the practice of his life. Then thirdly, conclusion expressed. Now, this is not the conclusion of the message, so stay with me, okay? Verse 21, he it is that loveth me. Verse 21, he that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. Now, in case you're looking for some middle ground here in the Lord's description of a true believer, well, you need not keep searching. It's not there. He draws a firm, broad line between the true and the false. Those who truly obey him are the ones who love him. Those who do not genuinely love Christ can be identified by their lack of obedience to the words of Christ. 
There is great assurance in this text. When the whole import of our life is to love and obey Jesus Christ, then it is clear that you are the one, you are one that has been born again. When your idea of Christianity is one of casualness and part-time relationship, one that fits into your schedule on its own, on your own terms, then you need to take heed. You have been exposed as one who does not truly love Christ, and therefore you could very well be lost in your sin. Again, we find our Lord using another present tense verb, which shows that the kind of love he offers or refers to is not temporary. It's not a situational uh, love. It's not a casual love. It's forceful. It's passionate. It's wholehearted. To love Christ means the whole, one's whole lifestyle is affected. His schedule reflects his love for Christ. His relationships reflect his love for Christ. His conversation reflects his love for Christ. His leisure time reflects his love for Christ. His family time reflects his love for Christ. His whole purpose in life reflects the love of Christ. Everything is changed in a person's life by genuine love for Jesus Christ. It's that old-time preacher Jonathan Edwards who wrote, Saving faith implies in its nature divine love. Our love to God enables us to overcome the difficulties that attend keeping God's commands, which shows that love is the main thing in saving faith, the life and the power of it by which it produces great effects. In the autobiography of John Patton, he was a 19th century missionary to the New Hebrides Islands, somewhere between the Fiji Islands and Australia. And he tells of the inhabitants of a particular island on which he worked. And these inhabitants were cannibals. For many years, they exercised their cannibalistic ways with fiendish delight. If one tribe tribe warred against another, those who fell victim in the battle were cooked and eaten. That ought to make you hungry for Sunday dinner. When a man died and was killed, his wives would be strangled to death so that they could join him in the afterlife. It was in this kind of setting in which the young John Patton came to know the new Hebrides with his bride and his young son. And shortly after arriving, his wife and his newborn son died. He faced these ruthless cannibals alone, often in danger and threat of life, and they lied to him. They tried to deceive him. Some claimed to worship the Lord in order to get things from Patton or to wrong him or to find a way to harm him. But one thing that gave him a clear indication of genuineness in the lives of those who profess faith in Christ was their faithful obedience. And it was an obedience that even in the face of opposition and persecution that proved real saving faith. When a native with his bare understanding, as you can imagine, gave himself to obedience to Jesus Christ, John Patton knew that the gospel had indeed taken root in his heart and true love for Christ had been born. Perhaps John's summary in 1 John 2, verse 3 through 5, of what Christ taught in our text here will help us to see it clearly. And hereby we know that we know him 
if we keep his commandments. He that saith, I know him and keepeth not his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoso keepeth his word in him, verily his love of the, his, the love of God is perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. And so a practice that proves. Secondly, notice a consequence that confirms. When a person truly loves Christ, his love will be evident by his obedience to Christ. But our Lord goes on to show that there are also certain consequences of that genuine love which will confirm one's profession as being true. Notice, first of all, the recipient of divine love. Again in verse 21, he goes on to say, And he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him. Now, we do not even question the love of God, do we? We know that one of the chief attributes of God is love. And yet what our Lord refers to is more than just a special love. It's a love that is directed specifically, powerfully, forcefully toward the believer. It's a love that comforts us in need. It's a love that secures and assures us in times of fear and of doubt. It's a love that provides for us. It's a love that transcends all the attitudes of this world to give us peace in whatever circumstance we're in. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 14, For the love of Christ constraineth us. There would be those who would debate whether he meant for our love for Christ or Christ's love for us. Personally, I think both are in view in that passage. When Paul realized the depth and the magnitude of the love of the Father and the Son toward him, it radically changed everything in his life. And it's in that same context that he declares that anyone who is in Christ is a new creation with old things passing away and all things becoming new. It's that divine love communicated to our hearts that keeps us moving on in obedience and faithfulness to the Lord. We may be so familiar with the love of God for us that we have lost sight of what this supposes. The Almighty has really no need for us. There is nothing within his divine being that cries out for our supply. The word of God tells us that he is a mighty sovereign, a mighty one, one who is omnipotent. He rules and he reigns, and the vastness of the heavens cannot contain him. All the wealth of this world, is, if laid before him as an offering, would not increase his might or his worth. He's totally without need, for he alone is God. And yet, the same God, this same God, the Father and the Son expressed in this text, personally loves each one of us today. He has an affection for us. Us who are poor and miserable creatures, we can do nothing for Him. He cares for us so that He bids us to cast all of our anxieties, all your cares upon Him. He comforts us so that He calls us to take the yoke upon ourselves and allow Him to bear the weight of our burdens. He loves us, not with a fickle, changing love, but with an everlasting love, one that is same, the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's 
It is these, this consequence or this consciousness of, of love of God for his own that gave inspiration to George Matheson's, Matheson's uh, great hymn, O Love That Will Not Let Me Go. O love that will not let me go, I rest my weary soul in thee. I give thee back the life I owe, that in thine ocean depths its flow may richer, fuller be. Another song that I don't believe is in our hymn book, but it's probably familiar to some of you, and that is the, oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, vast unmeasured, boundless, free, rolling as a mighty ocean in its fullness over me. Underneath me, all around me, is the current of thy love, leaning onward, leading forward, or homeward, to my glorious rest above. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. Love of every love the best. Tis the ocean vast of blessing. Tis the haven sweet of rest. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. Tis a heaven of heavens to me. And it fits me up to glory, for it lifts me up to thee. The recipient of divine love. Secondly, the recipient of divine experience. Notice the last phrase here in verse 21. And will manifest himself to him. And then in verse 22, it goes on to talk about Judas. Judas saith unto him, and notice it very distinctly says, this is not Judas Iscariot. This is also Judas who was known as Thaddeus. And he seems to be arguing with the Lord over this matter of disclosing himself specifically to the disciples. And he couldn't understand how the Lord would single them out uh, for his divine disclosure and not grant the same to the whole world. Rather than giving a direct answer to that question, our Lord refocuses Judas right back to the subject at hand, the glorious consequences of true love for Christ, a love that ushers forth in obedience. When that love for Christ is genuine, the Lord himself will disclose himself to us. I think this reminds us that Christian life is not merely a theory. It's not merely academic. It's experiential. It's something you experience. This manifesting is a word that means to declare in form or to make visible. Did this mean that every true believer would have a visible manifestation of Christ so that he could see him in the flesh? No. There were only a small number of early believers that actually saw Christ. The rest would know him just as intimately, though, because of his revelation that he's speaking of. It's the experience of knowing the living God through his living word. Maybe you can hear the heart cry of the Apostle Paul in his testimonial passage of Philippians 3 and verse 10. He exclaims that I may know him. We know him both through the revelation of God's word and the communication of the spirit. The word speaks clearly to the uh, uh, clearly of who he is and what he is about in our lives. The Holy Spirit then reveals the Son in a personal, real way, not deter, uh, different from the Scripture, but based upon the Scripture. We commune with our Lord. We actually call upon Him, and He hears us. He shows us His love. He gives us. His strength and His power. He opens our eyes to see more of the depths of His love and His care. 
I think too often people have the idea, you know, Christianity is really an impersonal religion. You simply need to profess profess that you believe uh, what the Bible teaches. You get attached to a church someplace, and then you just plod on through life. Well, if that's what Christianity is, I don't want anything to do with it. But that's, it's, it's not the revelation of God's Word. Christian Christianity is lively. Jesus comes to give us life and in all of its fullness. And again, quote from John's first epistle, John 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled of the word of life. For the life was manifested and we have seen it and bear witness and show unto you that eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you that ye also may have fellowship with us and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. I wonder this morning, do you know the personal experience of a relationship with Jesus Christ? And that's the glorious consequence of a genuine love for Christ. A recipient of divine love, a recipient of divine experience, and thirdly, a recipient of divine presence. Look at verse 23 here. Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he will keep my words. And my Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. Here the Lord presses this wonderful consequence even deeper. It is enough that Jesus and the Father love us and communicate his love to us personally through his word. It is even grander that he discloses himself to us that our relationship to him is not an impersonal deity, but a personal experiential knowledge of him. Now he states the incredible that this same living God comes to us individually and indwells us. Jesus uses the same word he had already used in chapter 14, verse 2, when he talked about mansions. And he was pointing out that we, are, as true believers, have become a dwelling place for the living God. This is not a word that describes the nomadic dwellings of typical Palestinians of that day. No, this instead is a word that describes a permanent dwelling. He comes to indwell us as believers, and we're never without him throughout all eternity. That's why Jesus declared at that day, ye shall know that I am in my Father, and ye in me, and I in you. And why later Paul would write, what? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? And later would say, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Listen, if you are a believer, you are indwelled by the Lord himself, by the Holy Spirit who is in you. Now, can you be discouraged in life knowing the Lord himself lives within you? Can you dare to be lax in your walk with Christ knowing that he dwells within you? Can you play with sin and ignore the commands of God while recognizing that you are a habitation of the Spirit of God? Can you be fearful and worried while realizing that the living Lord has come to make His abode in you? When your love for Christ is genuine, it will show forth in obedience to Him. 
And the wonderful consequences of a real salvation will begin to be evident in your life. You are a recipient of divine love, which he communicates to you. You have the personal experience of a relationship with the Lord. You are indwelled by the Holy Spirit who strengthens you by his divine presence. That brings us to a conclusion. All right. A conclusion that cautions. Now, believe me, this is the conclusion, okay? But notice verse 24. He that loveth me not, keepeth not my sayings. We cannot leave this passage without a quick glance at the final warning that it holds. Not everyone loves Christ. That's very evident in the world in which we live. And the sad thing is, there are some who profess to know Christ, do not show any signs of knowing Him by obeying Him. And so Jesus diagnoses the problem. He that loveth me not, keepeth not my sayings. It's not a secret. Hear what the Lord says. If you do not obey Him, it's because you do not love Him. Oh, we try to excuse our disobedience by some quirk we're going through or some phase of life in our family. But he gives no room for wavering. Do you love Jesus? True love means true obedience. And so where does this find you this morning? When you honestly look over your life and your heart... Is it bent on obeying Christ? Do you delight in doing His will? Listen, without this desire and practice of obedience, then you are exposed as one without Christ, or at least you're living like someone without Christ. And if you don't like what I'm saying, don't blame me. I'm just giving to you what the Bible says. But there is hope. There's a refuge from the storm of God's wrath, which all of us deserve. It's found by coming to faith in Christ and His atoning death. And there is a place of loving Christ, having faith in Him, and it is there where you find the whole direction for your life transformed so that from this point on, you will follow Him. Let's bow our heads in prayer.